Welcome back, everybody. My name is Freddie Fuller, and I'm the product specialist on the RBC European Equity team. And after a tumultuous few months in both markets and geopolitics, uh, we're going to explore some of the impacts of these events on the broader sustainability movement within Europe, especially with what we see as a need for Europe and the West to look at the implications of their sustainability transition in a global context. To discuss this, I'm joined again by Elmer de Kuyper, Portfolio Manager on the desk. Hello, everyone. Elmer, I thought it might be a, an apt place to start with how the war in Ukraine has really served to lift the curtain on many of the inherent contradictions in, in Western energy policy uh, and how this feeds into broader sustainability and decarbonisation trends. Um, perhaps the most obvious position to pick out first might be that of Germany. Mm. Um, now, we will always seek to extricate ourselves from the, the broader uh, moral questions of, of paying regimes at a Western-centric point of view may deem questionable. But the more interesting point is, is one that you recently made regarding the way that um, Germany has handled its broader energy policy in the face of the need to decarbonize. Yeah, I mean, Germany is a, is a great uh, one to discuss, um, simply because um, that is, there's been such a change. So until 2011, Germany obtained a quarter of their electricity yeah. from nuclear energy. Um, and they had 17 reactors. Uh, but then Fukushima happened, and that spurred the decision to fully phase this out by this year, 2022. So a mere 11 years later, uh, which is very fast. Um, now, that's interesting because popular opinion had been trending against nuclear as an energy source, you know, since, since long before that, the 1970s. And all of this you know, is very well intentioned in terms of its motivation for safeguarding citizens and protecting the environment. Um, but I guess because this transition was so fast, it's left Germany more reliant on coal and gas to meet their energy needs. Yeah. Um, and there's some worrying statistics associated with that. So the National Bureau of Economic Research has found that Germany's decision to switch off their nuclear reactors causes an additional 1,100 deaths per year due to additional air pollution. Um, and that's because carbon dioxide emissions have increased by around 36 million tonnes. Um, now, that, that's not, not ideal. So half of Germany's electricity supply today comes from non-renewable sources, including 35% from coal and lignite. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's true. Germany definitely is prioritising the decarbonisation of their economy, but the fact remains that they still import vast amounts of, of you know, coal and gas for their own use. Um, and you mentioned Ukraine. Well, 40% of Germany's natural gas today is imported from Russia specifically. And that does leave them in a sticky situation. And unfortunately, it doesn't solve the emissions problem, um, especially given that Germany doesn't plan to end their reliance on coal until 2038. Yes, and I think this, this issue can be fairly extrapolated out to a, a number of, of Western countries, not just Germany, uh, and, and, you know, demonstrates quite how reliant we still are on fossil fuels for the energy transition. Just look at the recent political debate in the UK around the pressure on oil and gas companies mm. to increase fossil fuel capex being, you know, a case in point. Um, now, there are questions around how much the transition may be stalled by the recent crisis. I'm, I'm not sure that's for, for us to, to comment on. Instead, much of this comes back to the point we make a, a lot, uh, which is needing to approach these things with a sceptical mindset. It's all well and good, developed nations 
promising targets, um, but then proceeding to offshore their dirtiest activities. Uh, the point being, you know, you must always always examine the counterfactual. Yes, and, and and this is and this is just talking about energy for power generation. We haven't even scratched the surface of of energy for product manufacturing. Yeah, sure. I mean, take the position of Iceland. Actually, uh, you know, proportionately, Iceland is the world's biggest energy producer by a wide margin. They produce around fifty five kilowatt hours per person, which is four times more than the US, and you know, well over double that of Norway, which is in second place. Mm. Um. But, you know, that, that shouldn't be a concern in itself because nearly 100% of their electricity is derived from renewables, um, hydro and geothermal. So the heating literally comes from the warmth of the earth. Um, but still, some will point the finger at the fact that the majority of this clean energy is used for heavy industry um, yeah. and most notably the production of aluminium and to a lesser extent, silicon and other metals. Um, yeah, Iceland produces more of these metals than any other European country apart from Norway. Um, and that, you know, that is a fair point because, of course, that is emissions inten- intensive. But this critique fails to take into account that that arguably is a positive because by producing these important metals with 100% renewable electricity in Iceland, um, it causes 10 times less CO2 emissions than if those activities were to be moved to energy-intensive China. Uh, and which has been a trend for, for any number of years now. But mm. as you say, the more that is produced with this renewable energy supply, and, and not to mention perhaps safer and less contentious labour practices, uh, you, you would say arguably better for the planet. Yes. Um, the, the, the point also here being is that public policy is probably behind the curve in taking this into account. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, both the Icelandic government and the EU target an absolute reduction in CO2 emissions, but that's on a local level, um, rather than looking at the broader picture on a global scale. Um, It is actually, you know, a fascinating fact that if the next aluminium smelter were to be built in Iceland rather than in China, um, globally, that would more than make up for all of Iceland's current CO2 emissions, which is a huge win. And of course, that same logic applies to any energy intensive industry um, that could make use of renewable energy in the West rather than, say, coal in a faraway country. So effectively, you know, what we're saying here is that if the ultimate aim is to decarbonize our global activities, and that, that is what it must be, um, it's, it's a pointless exercise to look at these things in autarky. Um, mm. Even in Europe, where regulation just about remains ahead of the curve, there remain issues. You know, you just talk about the ability to, to, to build out renewable infrastructure. There's a huge amount of concrete and steel, uh, amongst many other things, required for this. So will the EU only use that produced within the EU using cleaner energy? How far will this raise the capital required and therefore the break-even point for renewables in the future? Mm. Uh, does this suggest that you know support for the oil and gas industry from an ESG investment uh, point of view is actually a necessity because it's it's a necessary facilitator of the build out of renewables? And and this is a point uh, that has perhaps been muddied in the last few years, but they are very complicated questions. Mm. And. Ultimately, much of this comes through the complexity of a, of a heavily interlaced and globalised world going through a uh, potential transition to a more regional or national self-determination with regard to energy supply and policy um, with you know, the recent um, uh, geopolitical events serving as a catalyst. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. And you know, Freddie, it's not just limited to countries, actually. 
um, you know, as an investor from, from an investment standpoint, it's becoming increasingly important to engage with businesses far beyond their own reduction targets. Yeah. Um, those companies that look best through an ESG lens are often those that completely outsource production because then their carbon footprint looks nice and low and their sort of core business can be considered clean. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you can think of lots of different examples, but just to name a few, electric, electric vehicles that use um, lithium-ion batteries manufactured by very carbon-intensive factories in China, not to mention the raw materials and where those are mined, or you know, solar panels where the raw materials are sourced from mines using slave labor in Xinjiang. Um, and these companies are effectively rewarded for their opacity in reporting on these more nebulous parts of their supply chain. Um, and you know, perhaps that's because by being perceived by investors to be green, uh, they trade on a much higher valuation. Yeah, and, and you know, it's interesting to note that that shareholders in those businesses do, in a way, share this perverse incentive because you know they they would have made uh, pretty good money as a result. And given that management teams themselves are you know rewarded in company shares. Uh, typically rooted in total shareholder return targets, they too benefit directly from the spoils of being deemed uh, an ESG business. Mm. Perhaps um, perhaps it's worth going into an example here of, of some of the inherent conflicts uh, companies display. I know that you've been looking into uh, shipping on this basis recently. Yes, I mean, take, take Marisk, one of the biggest shipping companies in the world and how they handle the disposal of their ships once they've reached the end of their lifespan. So Marsk is a Danish business, and they have several standards around ship disposal that, as a result, would naturally apply. So firstly, there are some OECD standards around hazardous waste, um, but also, um, and very specifically, there's an EU law that came into effect in 2018 called the Ship Recycling Regulation, um, and that one requires companies to scrap ships registered in the EU in EU-approved facilities that maintain environmentally sound operations and ensure worker safety. So that's kind of the goal behind that particular piece of regulation. Um, and there are several examples of Maersk having sailed ships to unusual ports and then selling their ships or changing the flag, which then allows them to use shipyards for disposal that are not subject to EU rules. Right. Uh, and this is a practice that is entirely legal, it should be said, and it's definitely not limited to Maersk. Uh, 90% of ships disposed of globally are disposed of in this way. Um, but I do think it, it just represents how, how widespread and, and, you know, it's so emblematic of our globalized economy and how it contrasts with these localized regulations. And in the case of shipping, you know, bypassing them is, is very easy. It's made possible because of the you know, the use of something called flags of convenience, where you can kind of choose where to register your ship. And, um, you know, these are often countries that allow ship owners to to pay a fee to register with them. Uh, And often they'll fail to police international maritime law or or regulations to the same extent. Mm. Um, Now, if you look at Mars' ESG report, and they report extensively on on matters, um, you know, they do note their approach to responsible ship recycling. But they make no mention at all of either the OEC or EU rules when they discuss the shipyards they utilize in the relevant location, Alang, in India. Um, and therefore, it's, it's interesting for the company to cite sustainable ship recycling as a core priority, especially when contrasted with earlier comments made by their head of CSR in 2016, who actually said 
that if flying an EU flag would hinder the Marsk's ability to use the shipyards in the land, then they would consider changing the flag. Um, and, and they have subsequently been shown to have done that, yeah. uh, which, which is very interesting and kind of makes the point, you know. So um, I, I will say Marsk's publishing of yearly sustainability reports is laudable. And indeed, you know, they've committed to reducing the emissions generated from their operations. And they've actually, you know, championed improved recycling schemes for many years. But it does just highlight the need for nuance when, as an investor, you are analyzing these corporate sustainability targets or reports. So uh, while Maersk and the wider shipping industry may eventually make progress on sustainable businesses, practices um you're suggesting that as long as things such as flags of convenience and last voyage flags prevail um the the eu's attempts to regulate will never really have the desired impact is that what you're saying yes exactly and and really that just points again to the need for uh, as broad a um, coalition as possible when it comes to policy and regulation at both a corporate and regional basis um to ensure that the correct course uh, is set on sustainable practices. Mm. Um, unfortunately, that is all we have time for. So thank you very much, Elmer, for once again joining us and for all of our listeners for tuning in. Thank you.